Really, Easter uh, threw me off course. Uh, But I pray that in coming weeks, as we spend a few weeks here and there, that God may speak to us individually and to to families and, and as a church. Now that we are back in Queens, we need to address the, the direction of the church. So it is my prayer that in coming weeks, that by the grace of God, I will be able to address the Christians in the congregation. And I know there are people who are still in that place where they, they are here by the grace of God, but not yet fully confessing Christ. So... I want to address them as well. But also, we need to address the church's need, a direction, if you will, the visions. And, and, and in a way that I am thankful that we are not busy doing our ministries, right? So that we could all come together under the word and hear what really God says. And in another sense, It really is a resetting time for our church as well. So it is my prayer that you remember these words, God's words, what He wants us to be as individuals and families, but also as a church. Uh, So with that, let me read God's word for all of us, the post-resurrection account. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. And that he had said these things to her. So when it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, when the doors were shut where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then Rejoiced when they saw the Lord. So Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. And when he said, had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. But Thomas, one of the twelve called Dadaimus, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. And Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, and and stood in their midst and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach here with your finger and see my hands and reach here your, your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? 
Blessed are they who did not see, yet believed. Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in His name. Amen. If you read the resurrection accounts carefully with an open mind, you will discover that they are true and faithful eyewitness accounts. The first-hand accounts recounted by Mary Magdalene and the group of women first, and then the disciples, Peter and John. For example, there are many details as you have noticed in John's Gospel. They do not necessarily contribute to the proof for the resurrection. But when you think about it, but as a whole, they, those little details in the accounts, they authenticate the circumstance or the truthfulness of the author, thereby setting the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the context of historicity and veracity. What I mean by this is that, you know, when you hear many pastors, uh, even, even myself, they present proofs for the resurrection. But when you read all four Gospels, there are not a single word on the resurrection itself in that it explains how it happened. It is all, they are all post-resurrection account. And what I want to do is to give you some of the examples uh, that probably you have heard somewhere. I'm adding some of mine into it as well. But when you listen to all these little details, it does not necessarily prove Christ's resurrection, unlike many other people say. But it puts the resurrection account in that mold or the fold of truth, truth claims. All these little things are indirect way of saying that the resurrection account is verifiable reliable, dependable, credible, and historical event. So let me give you some of that in the beginning of my sermon. John records in John 20, 4 and following in this way. Post-resurrection account. The two were running together. The other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter, talking about himself, John. He ran faster than Peter. And came to the tomb first. What does that have to do with the resurrection account? Really nothing. Other than the fact that he ran faster than Peter. And he's writing this down. Stooping and looking in, he saw, that's John, the linen wrappings lying there. But he he did not go in. So Simon Peter also came, following him, he entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head. 
not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. What is this? They do not prove resurrection per se, but simply the fact that this writer is writing his own true account of what he has experienced. It is, I think it's very important and we need to give more credit to this than it is normally assumed. Placing the resurrection account in this truth claims. Why? Why is this important? Because the character of a witness matters. In this way, John is simply saying in all other Gospels, it is a straightforward reporting. And there really is not a hint of embellishment or, or, or myth-making. We are so used to these Gospel accounts. So it, it is, we, we just read it and say, oh, this is what happened, and we move on. Until you compare this account with other materials. In the beginning of my prep this week, I've read a lot of Quran, portion of Quran. Not that I enjoy it, uh, but I'll bring it to you sometime. Just so that you could be exposed to other religious texts and see the difference. The difference of these four gospel accounts are that there are just simply so many stories. You go back and read, go back and read other religious texts, you will not find that kind of statement. Like somebody's running fast, he looked in but he did not go in, he followed Peter, there's another cloth this way, that way. None of the religious texts say that kind of stuff. But we will come to that as an apologetics. Matthew says it in his gospel that when the body was missing, the soldiers went to the high priest and they gave them money and they told them to spread a rumor that his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. So it ends with this account. They took the money, did as they had been instructed and this story was widely spread among the Jews and it is to this day. What is? There was no resurrection but the disciples came and stole the body. And they are making up a story. Even says that in Matthew's account. Now, myth and legends are two different things. But by and large, how do they develop? Myth or legend? Listen to one explanation. In Greek mythology, there is no single original text like Christian Bible that introduces all of the myths, characters, and stories. Instead, the oldest Greek myths were part of an oral tradition that began in the Bronze Age, and their plots and themes unfolded gradually in the written literature of the archaic and classical periods. Right. Legend, legends and myths, they take long time to develop. Listen to the birth of Christianity. Christ's death and resurrection in between only three days, as he predicted. And his execution on Golgotha drew thousands of people, spectators. 
Apostle Paul in the book of Acts, he goes around and he plants churches and the growth of Christianity. It was somewhere between the 40s and 50s. As you know from the book of Acts, the church explodes into the scene on the day of Pentecost. Pentecost is 50 days after the Passover. So, what we witness in Christianity, at least in the beginning part of it, is that everything really happened in about two months period. Not hundreds of years, not thousands of years, but while everybody who witnessed Christ's death, public execution, were alive, three days after, the claim starts coming that Christ was raised. He was raised. God raised him three days. And by the 50th day, Holy Spirit descends upon the handful of disciples and the church, the New Testament church, just exploded out of sin. All of these do not prove, at least to me, do not prove resurrection account to non-believers. But what I'm going to explain now in a few minutes will probably point towards that conclusion that there is no other explanation for that kind of phenomenon than the resurrection itself. The claim, Matthew explains that the story of resurrection was a hoax. They made it up. Now think about that chance. When religious leader is executed by the Romans, the band of disciples suddenly emerge out of their hiding place with a claim that the dead man was raised without sword or army or without protection of an uh, influential political figure, which really is nothing but a suicidal mission for a hoax or myth. Why would they do that is the question. If that was a hoax, then you may ask these questions. What happened to them and why would they do that? Just think with me for a second. What happened to them? As you have seen, they were fearful of their lives, on their, their own lives, and they locked themselves up. They were hiding. Why? Simply because you don't want to be seen in the public. Because your leader was just executed and you don't want to die either. So they are hiding. At least for almost 40, 50 days, they are hiding. They went into hiding. But 50 days after the crucifixion, they come out with a message that Jesus is alive. That's what they fabricated for 50 days in hiding. That's the message that they came up with. People accuse this story even to, to this day. If This is a hoax. You have to say for 50 days these people were in hiding, made up a story, a single message that their leader is alive. And they came out. But again, I am not saying these are the direct proofs of his resurrection, but just human nature. Just think about human nature. Why? Follow the money, we say. Why would they do this? Can we come up with any kind of uh, explanations? For example, power grabbing. Power struggle between 
the disciples. Money, probably one of the most important aspects that you must investigate. Money, is there money at stake? Can they make money out of this movement? Controlling. Fame, probably, maybe. Prestige. Or legacy. Or that could be complete group of crazy people, lunatics. But really, the, the, listen to the message. If you want to grab one of those, what are the chances that group of people will come up with this single message that really cannot grab or claim one of those that people usually seek? Peter's message in book of Acts 2, listen to this, 2.24, he says this, But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in his power. Whatever the motive that they had, you have to assume that they got together for 50 days in the attic, came up with a plan to make money, influence people, defend the honor of their executed leader, whatever it is, they came out with a message, unbelievable message that Jesus is now alive. Resurrection story. If you want to deceive people to make money, to make a religion, or to, I don't know, get fame, famous, whatever that it is, would you fabricate a story of resurrection is the question. Just humanly speaking, naturally speaking. Next, resurrection is hard to believe now, and it was the same for them as well. How many of us know a group of people who pulled off something out of resurrection story? Think about world history from the east to the west. Think about any group of people who made a religion or built a dynasty or something like that out of resurrection story. Would you come up with that kind of story? I mean, you, you could. But unlikely is my conclusion. What is the message after the resurrection in the book of Acts? What do you see? And the end of, at the end of that preaching, Peter says this to the group of people. Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. What's the chief message of this, let's say, people, group of people who came up with this fake news or hoax that their leader is alive. They will make up something outlandish as that their leader is alive to forgiveness of sins. What gain is there? As you know, in book of Acts 2.45, the early church Christians, they did this. They began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all. If group of people were making money out of this claim, very evidence presented in the book of Acts, they work against it. You make something up like that, and then you preach the forgiveness of sins and love God and love people, and then you sell your stuff, you examine whatever religions that, that you could imagine or investigate. It's really a unique 
thing that is happening here. For any organizations to survive and stick together, there must be enough profit sharing. In the 17th and 18th century, one of the most egalitarian societies existing in the European world was what? Do you know? Was a pirate ship. Pirates. If you study pirates, their organizations were the most egalitarian at the time in the world. They freely, freely chose their leader, democratic way, until they failed to return the profit. They deposed him and they picked a new leader, unlike any other dynasties or power groups at the time. Right, the leader has to provide prizes and booties that they capture. That's exactly what happened in the rise of Islam. And I may talk about Islam just for our senior's sake. They need to be equipped of those things. I may or may not. Otherwise, they would be mutiny. So, you make up a crazy idea that this man is alive. You go out and preach that you need to be forgiven of your sins. And you start selling your stuff and share with everybody. And as leaders, you have to live the most ethical life because of the message. Does this, all this, do they prove the resurrection account? Like I've been saying, no, I don't think so. Some of the people say Josh McDowell and they would say proofs of resurrection. That's a really overstatement. Also, Look at all these um, religions. The power, the religion never really takes off by the group of people because of infighting. It has to be a single person. And now the leader's gone. Jesus is dead. And group of men leading this kind of organization in the, in the midst of all this opposition by the Romans and the Jews... What are the chances, I'm thinking? How did the leadership supplement itself in the book of Acts, chapter 1? One died, committed suicide, one of the core leaders in the beginning. What do they do? They don't elect president, but they, they pray to God and they cast lot and the, that it falls on Matthias. If anybody could become a ruling person, could have been Peter. But as you know, in Galatians, he is publicly rebuked by Apostle Paul. And Apostle Paul, who's not even in a circle of Jesus, writes half of the New Testament Bible, most prominent figure. You see, all of these things are not natural. At least you will not see this in world history. I don't think so. And what did they get? Those people, disciples, the apostles, the the, the handful of apostles, they all die. Okay, they came up with all this to die? Yes, the leaders could die, overjealous people could die for their beliefs. But not the father, not the mothers, not the early church martyrs who, who who will be going into the lion's den, into the arena to be torn apart by the beasts. 
Not rebelling against authority. How do you explain that? Another thing, popular um, arguments against this is hallucination. That they saw something that it was, was not there. You know, I'm not a doctor, so I googled it. What causes hallucinations? I mean, naturally speaking, common sense. They say drugs or substance abuse. Hallucinations, right. But what, what works against that claim is that it was a group thing. As you have seen, resurrected Christ showed himself to his disciples, groups. One man out of grief, let's say, Jesus, he misses Jesus so much. And he sees ghosts. By the way, Bible actually says they thought they were seeing a ghost. A group of men with diverse background. Remember, all, many of them were fishermen. You know what that means? They are physically fit men. You can't do that in, if, if you're a sick man. They had business contract among themselves. Matthew, for one, he was a CPA, rich man. Diverse background group of men deciding that we have seen the ghost. What are the chances? Is my question. I've heard that when at least Korean army, when they search out, or they send out a search group right at the border, north and south, they usually send more than two, minimum three. They say two men prone to agree. But the third man, the presence of third man, they will not agree on anything. They cannot run away. They cannot desert. But look at all these men. At the least, they will have 12 leaders. They all lay down their lives for a claim of hoax. Not really. It's just, I cannot imagine that. Also, you have to see the appearance of Christ happened not one time. If it is claimed from the Bible that they saw Jesus one time, one night, sure, it might have been a group hallucination. But multiple places in verse 26 today, after eight days, Thomas, doubting Thomas, but Jesus does not return that night, rebukes him. No, he waits eight days. And in the resurrection account, you know what Jesus said in the resurrection in Matthew, and listen to this. Do not be afraid. Go and take word to my brethren to live for Galilee, and there they will see me. But the eleven disciples proceeded to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had designated. John 21. He, manis he manifested himself in this way, where? At the Sea of Tiberias. Jesus' appearance for the period of 40 days happened in multiple occasions, places, or, and showing himself to different people. And even, as you know, Apostle Paul claims there were 500 eyewitnesses. I would just say a couple more. One is this. I've noticed something as I was reading this. Whatever that they were experiencing, skeptics say, Bible says this, first day of the week, when the doors were shut. Why? Where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Think about that. 
When you are locking yourself up probably in the attic, because they had a big attics there, what happens when you are fearful, when you lock the door? Fear puts you in an acute state of mind. Why? Because you're on edge. You don't know when the secret police is going to kick down the door and come after you. Not just you, but your children too. I think it's a big clue that they were fearful and they locked themselves up somewhere, hiding from the Jews. In that state of mind, is that an opportune time for them to experience some kind of high and hallucination and see a ghost? I don't think so. They are fearful. They are fearful of their lives, their loved ones. And Bible, over and over again, as I've quoted last week, honestly says that they were doubting. Matthew 28, 17 says this, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some were doubtful. Why put that? If you are making up a story, why put that? Mark 16, 11, When they heard that he was alive and he had been seen by her, they refused to believe it. Why write that down unless it really happened? Luke 24, 11, But these words appeared to them as nonsense. And they would not believe them. Who? The disciples. Why write that down? But they were startled and frightened and thought that they were seeing a spirit. Right. I will conclude. Just naturally speaking, their shock, confusion, fear, and doubt were all there. And Bible actually writes all of them down. It's a truth claim that there is a truthful report that what they are reporting. And in my mind, there could be no other explanations for all of that that, that we just witnessed than this. I have seen the Lord. Whatever happened, the initial rising of Christianity described in the post-resurrection account and the how it happened is not explained. Just like how the virgin conception, Holy Spirit, that's all there is in the Bible. We don't know how that is the case. Mysterious, yes, but it is true. All these claims, naturally speaking, will not have happened. But one explanation that we could draw from the accounts, Bible accounts, is that confession. As I was meditating, that's why I'm spending next few weeks just on this passage. I'm not going through verse by verse, but the repetition. Over and over again, listen to this text that we have read. Mary Magdalene, verse 18, came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord. That sentence is repeated. Verse 20, when he had said this, he showed them both his hands and his side. The disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Mary Magdalene, who was just fearful, but she was told to report this, and she comes, and the first thing that she says is, I have seen the Lord. Disciples, they were fearful, but Christ shows himself and his side and his hands, and they rejoice. Why? They rejoice because they saw the Lord. 
First appearance, the second appearance here, Thomas wasn't there. But listen to verse 25. So the, the disciples were saying to, to him, We have seen the Lord. Nothing else. They couldn't explain it, but Mary Magdalene is saying the same thing. And when they saw the Lord, they were rejoicing. And Thomas wasn't there, so all the disciples were saying to him, We have seen the Lord. And he says, Unless I see him, I'm not going to believe. Verse 28, Jesus said to him, Thomas, after the confession, My Lord and my God, Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Many people will say this, I want to see him too. If you show me Jesus, then I will believe. But as we read this text carefully, that's not going to happen. You know how people say, show me Jesus, then I will believe him. But it cannot happen. First of all, according to the scriptures, the Bible, he is risen physically, and he ascended into the heavenlies physically. So physically speaking, Christ is not Here, he cannot be seen with our eyes. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in, the Comforter, who he will lead us into the truth. And as we try to confess in the beginning of our worship, that it is the Holy Spirit who takes the Word of God and convinces you so that you may exclaim like the disciples, I have seen the Lord. But we are not now, post-resurrection and ascension of Christ, we are not authorized to seek physical appearance of Christ. We are not expecting Him to return and show Himself. But the primary means of God doing exactly the same thing is using His Word being read and proclaimed to you. And by faith, you are going to behold Christ. That is it. To Thomas, he says a couple of things, and I want to explain that briefly, and I'll be done. Verse 27, Jesus says, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Or Jesus was gracious to, to, to show himself and and asked him to reach here your hand and put it into my side. He was gracious. But he says this in verse 27, Do not be unbelieving, but believing. As you could tell, that is the command. We usually pass that over, but if you stop and think about that, what Jesus is doing is, Jesus is transforming the post-resurrection account that, and, and transforms it and, and it applies to post-ascension New Testament church just like you and me. He is telling all of us to believe. But that's correct translation. Believing. Keep on doing that in an adjective. Do not be unbelieving but believing. Have you thought about that? It puts stop to all speculations and and evidence examining. 
depending on the tradition of Reformed churches, they present the resurrection in different ways. They, some of them, they emphasize the evidences. Some of them don't. But whatever the case, this command to Thomas really puts to stop to everyone or every skeptic's searching for evidences. Just like in Christ, in his own time, people were asking for signs and miracles. And Jesus says, no, I'm not going to show it. Other than my own, that would be, I'll be raised on the third day. Jonah's miracle, Jonah's sign, that's all I'm going to show you. Likewise, when Jesus says in 27, do not be unbelieving, but believing, it really makes you really be confronted with God's command through a Christ command that now it is time to believe. How do we think about resurrection? If you are a believer and you have unbelieving children or unbelieving spouse, or even you, if you're sitting here today, we hear about all these things, but normally, by and large, people wait. That's what I figured. People wait until that it is convincing enough, whenever that is, however that comes. But people just keep on putting it off and t- putting it off until someday later, future. If somebody, great preacher, comes and convinces me, or something like that, show me the evidences that, but according to Christ, when he says, do not be unbelieving, but believing, what he is asking you to do is that now you need to decide to believe in these claims. Don't just wait until it happens to you. But you obey the command. Jesus says, believing, believe, stop unbelieving, believe. Then, as you obey, what you got to do is that you got to make a decision to believe these claims. You do not wait. You do not unbelieve, but believe. How does that happen? For those of us who wonder, how can that, how can that be? Remember, I briefly mentioned this. When Jesus returned from the desert, the very first preaching for him was repent. Repent. And I told you, I gave one comment on that. When Jesus says, repent, he's not being an Arminian. I am speaking to those people who are well-versed in Reformed theology. For example, today, when Jesus says, do not be unbelieving, but believing. And when I ask you, is it time to believe? Some of, some of people are wondering in their hearts, how can they do that? John Murray, who was a professor at Westminster Seminary, and he is really a prominent professor. And, and listen to him. God's call, since it is effectual, carries with it the operative grace whereby the person called is enabled to answer the call and to embrace Jesus Christ as he is freely offered in the gospel. That work of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we call that as regeneration. It is mysterious and it is unseen and undetectable. You cannot, you cannot sense it. God does it. But you could only see it afterwards. So, what Apostle Paul says, 
summarizing his own ministry, would you listen to this? Beginning of Romans 1 and the end of Romans 16, he describes his own ministry in this way. Through whom we have received grace and apostleship. He's talking about his apostleship. To bring about what? It's not simply gospel proclamation. He says this, to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake. Did you hear that? He didn't say bring about faith, but obedience of faith. If you may unpack that, obedience that obeys God's command in faith. Chapter 16, 26, he summarizes once again. But now is manifested by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to obedience of faith. Reformation study Bible says this. Faith implies obedience, submission to the call of God. I am not trying to mix faith and obedience, somehow introducing works. But what I am saying is this. When Christ says to you, repent, You don't have to worry about mysterious work of the Holy Spirit. That's his job. You don't argue with God, but I'm spiritually dead. How can I respond to God's call? That is Spirit's job. You don't worry about that. What you worry about is obedience to that command. And when you repent, you will realize God has already supplied enough grace in you. God has already worked regeneration in you. That, that's why you are able to respond to that call of repentance. So, when Jesus says to Thomas, Do not be unbelieving, but believing, I am telling you. You need to obey that command. He is not sin. You are not authorized to ask for his presence so that I could see and believe. But Jesus says, believe. The last one is this. Afterwards, what did, what did Jesus say? Jesus said to him again here, to, 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 to Thomas, Because you have seen me and have you believed, blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Christ elevates, praises, believing without seeing over against the seeing and believing. Most of people want to see the evidences and then I will make decision to believe. But what Christ does at the last minute here is that Christ transforms that normal way of thinking and pronounces blessing to those people that they who do not see and yet believe, they are the blessed ones. When you hear the word blessed, what comes to your mind? Beatitudes. We don't take this statement seriously because we think of blessed as addition to our lives. We don't really need that. I mean, it's good to have them, but it is not necessary. My life is fine. So when Jesus says, blessed are those who did not see yet believe, we just pass along as if Jesus is kind of musing and and just kind of suggesting, it will be nice if you believe me, but if not, that's okay. You see, when you think about blessing, what is the opposite of blessing? Isn't it curse or cursing or woe to you in Luke? So, what blessing, when Jesus pronounces blessing, it really is not talking about health and wealth and all these additions to your lives. 
But it is God's kind invitation to undeserving sinners for reconciliation and restoration. And this last blessed statement by Christ completes all the Beatitudes statements in Matthew 5. Why? Because by believing, as we have seen in verse 31, that believing you may have life in His name. I am done. I pray and hope that Holy Spirit will take His word and will make it effectual unto salvation in your own hearts. Don't just wait until this thing, religious thing, happens to me. But believing, start believing now. Store these words as Christ commands you today to believe and receive them as His truth. Then for those of us who believe, this is promised to all of us. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says this, For now we see it, see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will know fully, just as I also have been fully known. Just like first disciples, they are asked to believe first. Then Christ showed himself. That's the pattern here too in New Testament church. By the authority of Christ speaking from the scriptures, you are asked to believe. You are commanded to believe. But once you believe, you are blessed. And for those of you who are blessed, as it is promised here, you will face, you will see him face to face when Christ returns. What a blessed hope that we have in Christ Jesus. There are so many things that we need to talk about as a church. Direction, vision, missions, evangelism, Christian teaching, Christian Sunday schools, and all of that. But we cannot bypass this question. Right? We cannot bypass resurrection of Christ and your response to this account. Because apart from believing in Him, you do not have life. How can we talk about church? How can we talk about missions or evangelisms and inviting people? How can we teach other people? Unless you believe in His name. Unless you possess this life in you. Impossible. How can we talk about other people outside of church when in fact we have unbelieving spouses and husbands and wives and children and what not? So those of you, wherever you are, whatever situation that you, you, you are in now, I pray for God's grace in your hearts. And as God enables you, you must start believing and you can believe in Him because God supplies such grace. Let us pray.